Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Of the five companies that are developing technology in the space, three of the five are doing something that is either that or is a derivative of that basic approach, i.e., getting electrodes into the brain by penetrating into the brain in one way, shape, or form. And so that's BlackRock, Paradromics, and Neuralink. Um, and they're doing it in, in slightly different ways, but, but that's kind of the fundamental approach. We are developing, or we have developed an array that sits on the surface of the brain. It has incredible, like a huge number of electrodes. So 1,024 electrodes within, you know, sort of a little more than a square centimeter. And the array is incredibly thin, so it's a fifth of the width of a human hair. So it sits really conformally on the surface of the brain. And those electrodes, 95% of them are 50 microns in diameter, so half the width of a human hair. So you can barely see them um, with the naked eye. And they're manufactured using photolithography, which is like the same technology that's used to make uh, semiconductor chips. And because of that high resolution, you get an incredibly detailed picture of the brain's activity. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Michael, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you're like one of a long line of people who has been referred to me by Michael Shine, who always refers the most amazing guests. So no pressure at all. But, um, you know, he told me a bit about what you did. And when I heard the words brain implant, I thought, okay, yeah, I definitely got to talk to this guy. Like, this is something that I've been wondering about. But before we get into all of that, uh, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you've ended up doing with your life and your career? Yeah, my, my parents had, um, you know, very different and I, I'd say in some way complementary, uh, careers. My dad was in business and finance his whole life. Um, and, you know, was, was involved in the community through board service on, uh, various charities. And my mother, um, after raising me and my sister, uh, became a social worker and, um, really dedicated her life to people, uh, who were older, um, who were often homebound, uh, and in many cases who didn't have family to come visit them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my mom would, um, 
do home visits and organize uh, for volunteers to do home visits, um, primarily in the Jewish community and in sort of uh, uptown Manhattan. Um, and I learned a tremendous amount from both of them. Um, they had very, they have very uh, firm sort of ethical, moral uh, foundations for what they did. But uh, in one case, a very commercial focus, and in the other case, a uh, really humanitarian focus. Yeah. So it's funny because those are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Like a very commercial focus and a humanitarian focus. And I wonder how you blend the two to, together and, and how the blend has kind of shaped, you know, the choices that you have made. And, and when you're, when you say your dad is in finance, we're talking like, you know, Michael Lewis, big swinging dick investment banker finance or, uh, you know, like somebody who's like a CFO at a company. Yeah, so somewhere in between the two, I'd say. Okay. Um, you know, he, he started his career as an investment banker in New York and then did some really interesting projects. He helped, uh, for example, take the first car dealerships public before um, my dad and, and a couple partners. Uh, car dealerships were always privately owned and, and there was actually restriction uh, for taking them public um, because the, the auto manufacturers um, had a requirement of sort of knowing all the shareholders um, of the dealerships that they were in partnership with. Um, and so my dad sort of pioneered this new uh, method of, of public ownership for car dealerships. So somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Well, so Ed, you, you alluded to, to the Jewish community. Are, are you of Jewish descent as well? I am. Okay. So I, this is always something that I'm, I'm curious about when I talk to my, my Jewish podcast guests, because everybody tells me that growing up as a Jewish kid is very similar to growing up as an Indian kid in terms of what you're taught about making your way in the world. It's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, failure. <laughs> Right. I mean, I think that there's, there's definitely, listen, I think it's a, it's an incredibly, um, proud intellectual tradition. I also think there's a history of sort of feeling a little bit like an outsider. Um, and, you know, for me, I think that that was honestly sort of helpful from a motivation standpoint, even though, you know, I grew up, uh, objectively, you know, I was incredibly lucky. I had two wonderful parents and, and a loving family and, uh, you know, a, a privileged upbringing in a lot of ways. I think, you know, it's something in your background that, that, you know, my parents dealt with, um, they're growing up, uh, you know, anti-Semitism and, and, and being excluded from certain institutions. Um, and it's something that I have found in my life to be a, and I'm, I'm quite proud and, and also, uh, quite motivational. Um, but spiritually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really not involved. It's, it's more of a cultural, uh, grounding than anything else. Yeah. Were they uh, first generation immigrants or were their parents here before them? Their parents, uh, in one, on my mom's side, my, my grandparents immigrated, um, and my dad's side, a generation before that. Okay. Yeah. He's like, I, I think about things like anti Semitism and, and racism and how it changes from generation to generation. Like, you know, like I feel like obviously there's some undertones of some of these things happening today. Um, where it almost feels like we've gone backwards socially. But like, I, I wonder, like, what did they teach you about, you know, sort of acceptance and, and what all of that means in the context of society at large? You know, it, it really lit a fire under me. You know, my, my dad uh, was told by um, the sort of principal of the school that he'd gone to that he couldn't apply to Harvard uh, without uh, sort of a, a wasp, basically, to apply with him because they would never just take a Jew from the school he went to. They would They would at best take uh, you know, one, uh, and the other. Um, and so, you know, that was something that I think, uh, understandably annoyed him for his whole life. Uh, and I found, you know, to be sort of a motivating force, um, in my life. And I sort of wanted to infiltrate the institutions that had historically, uh, been difficult to penetrate. Um, Mm -hmm. and, 
So in a funny way, I, I, I've always sort of, I found it a, a, a positive rather than a negative. I, I can't say in my life that I've ever, I mean, listen, I grew up in New York. It's, right. it's, it's a quarter Jewish. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, outside of Israel, there, there are more Jews in New York than anywhere else. So I, you know, I, I think it was an incredibly, uh, an incredibly place to grow up as a Jew. I didn't experience anything bad. Yeah. Well, talk to me about the trajectory of like what has led you to what you're doing today. Because like, like I said, when I heard the word brain implant, you know, like two thoughts mm-hmm. went to my mind. This could be fucking amazing or this could be dystopian as hell. <laughs> yeah, it has both those, uh, both those potentials, but I, but I, I we're working hard uh, for it to be the former. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, my life and my career were definitely not destined to end up, um, in sort of, you know, brain computer interface, uh, industry. Um, I studied history and literature in college. Um, and, uh, out of, um, out of college, I moved to Hong Kong, uh, initially as a summer intern for an investment fund, um, that was based, based in Hong Kong and basically investing, uh, from Australia to India, um, and everything in between. Um, and it gave me an extraordinary sort of background in, in business and, and, uh, different business models, different jurisdictions, uh, incredibly different sort of cultural approaches to management and, um, and, and driving shareholder value. Um, and, uh, I ended up, uh, sort of thinking that I was going to spend a year or two in Asia, uh, learn the ropes and then come back to the U S I ended up spending nearly eight years, uh, living in Hong Kong. Um, which was an extraordinary experience and I, I made incredible friends and had a lot of terrific adventures. Um, but ultimately, you know, investing, uh, is generally about buying small stakes in very large, large public companies. If you're sort of on the public market side. Um, and that was something that I didn't find, uh, you know, totally fulfilling. Um, so, uh, I moved back to the United States. I spent a year in England and, and did a graduate program. Um, and took some time off, um, and came back to the United States and, and with a partner, um, started really sort of, uh, buying and building a handful of businesses that we were intimately involved in. Um, and it was sort of out of that that came, uh, Precision Neuroscience, which is the company, uh, that's developing the brain implant. Yeah. Well, let's talk briefly about uh, your time in Hong Kong. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be dragged around the world by my parents. But something I always wonder about people who spend like a, a large amount of time in another country, particularly as an adult, is the combination of two things. One is the culture shock when you arrive at that place and then the reverse culture shock when you return to the United States. <laughs> talk to me about those two things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a few different sort of uh, anecdotes from that time. I, I'd say, you know, we invested in the largest media company in the Philippines. And the Philippines is a country of, at that point, 90 million people. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big market. Um, and the movie stars there uh, are completely unknown to anybody, um, virtually anybody in the United States. And so, you know, I had the opportunity to meet people um, at the sort of film studio uh, who, you know, I couldn't tell from, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference between someone serving the food and someone acting in the, in the movies. And it was just a reminder that, you know, the, the we take, um, we all have very narrow perspectives. Um, and somebody's movie star is another person's total stranger. Um, and it doesn't, you know, one person is not really, you know, more valuable, more important than the next. It really just depends on your perspective on things. Um, and I've sort of kept that, uh, as a core lesson, I think for, for, for the rest of my life. Um, I also, you know, had sort of, I think, a naive reaction to first moving to Hong Kong, which was, you know, when I moved in 2005, um, which is when I graduated college, 
there were, you know, Asia was booming. Uh, China was growing, you know, over 10% a year and, and, uh, you know, developing Asia was just, um, it, it was going gangbusters. And yet, you know, there were fewer people, um, who had, uh, who were sort of trying to, um, leverage those opportunities who had gone to, you know, U.S. or, or U.K. schools who, who were in a position to, um, to do really well out there. And I thought, God, what a, what a mismatch. You know, people have moved to New York to these huge, very bureaucratic corporations, and they're just trying to sort of, you know, scratch their way up. Whereas this enormous opportunity in Asia and people just don't understand. Um, and what I came to realize was that, you know, living halfway around the world, the world, um, no matter how big the commercial opportunity comes with real costs. Uh, and, um, you know, from a sort of lifestyle perspective, uh, I really started to, to miss home, um, and miss, uh, you know, the, the people I'd grown up with in my family. And so, uh, I ended up being, uh, you know, becoming one of those people who ended up <laughs> spending some time out there and, and, and coming home. Yeah. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit cellularnutrition.solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's cellularnutrition.com. 
www.solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, it's funny because I had a similar experience. I moved to Costa Rica for six months because I was a surfer and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be heaven. And I remember by the time I was done, I hated it. I wanted to get back, get back. Um, because I think that like, and it's funny because you saw this really stark contrast between the people who had come on vacation there versus the locals and, or people like me who were just staying there. And everybody who was on vacation thought, was like, oh, this must be amazing to like live here. And I'm like, no, it actually sucks. And I remember when I went back for vacation, I had a much better time because I knew I was only there for three weeks. Totally. Totally. It really depends on your frame of mind um, and also, you know, how much time. Uh, it's a big difference spending a couple of weeks versus six months mm -hmm. versus six years. Yeah. Um, well, so one thing I wonder, you mentioned that working in banking gave you this fantastic foundation for you know, understanding business and, and, you know, creating shareholder value. And something I've thought a lot about, I remember I wrote this article titled Business School Teaches You Nothing About Running a Business based on my, my personal experience. And I remember Naval Ravikant actually mentioned this. He said, the thing with starting a business is there are all these hidden idiosyncrasies that don't express themselves until you actually start the damn thing. Um, and I wonder, you know, based on the, the banking background, how much of that has translated and how much of it has been just like, holy shit, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's a great question. I, you know, I would say that um, investing, especially investing in public markets, so investing in companies that um, are, are listed on the stock exchange uh, is probably somewhere in between running a company and really understanding the nuts and bolts and the guts of it and doing the more theoretical sort of, you know, business school case study type approach. You are making a, you know, uh, you're putting risk capital on the line um, into a company and every day you're told by the stock market whether you're right or wrong. Um, and if you look too closely, I think you actually, you sort of miss the point. So you can't, you can't look on a minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day basis, but over weeks and months, um, you know, generally, uh, the stock price performance, um, really follows the, the underlying performance and, and prospects of the business. And you're told in no uncertain terms whether your judgment was correct or incorrect. Uh, and you don't necessarily know exactly why, at least in the moment, though generally you, you find out over time. Um, but, you know, having that money on the line and having yourself on the line to some extent, um, you know, really focuses the mind and it, it's not a theoretical um, sort of construct. That said, you know, there's a difference between doing that and then being in the weeds of a business and living it day to day and seeing what the challenges are and the opportunities are and what can go right and what can go wrong. Yeah. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think that there's no, uh, no replacement for, for, for that sort of lived experience. Yeah. I, I think it, you know, it kind of reminds me of Nassim Taleb's concept of skin in the game where like you're mm -hmm. directly affected by the outcomes of your actions when you're running a business. Totally. I mean, you are to a certain extent, too, when you're investing. I mean, you know, you I, and I think that that's the benefit uh, of, of investing where, you know, you feel it uh, when when things go well, you can feel like you're you're Superman and can do no wrong. And when things go poorly, uh, you feel terrible. And I think that that's um, to a certain extent uh, similar to running a business. But but running a business, you just understand what's driving the fundamentals in a totally different way. Well, explain to me how a guy who studies history in college ends up running a, a company that was working on brain computer interfaces. But I, and, and then 
I think we need to give people some foundational sort of neuroscience background, like the basics. Because I literally had to take the article that w- was on Wired about you, put it into my AI, and it was like, explain this to me like a five-year-old so I know what the hell I'm talking about when I talk to Mar- Michael. Uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's that, that, that also is a great question. It's one my, my parents have asked many times. Uh, and so I'll, I'll do my best. Um, you know, basically a brain computer interface, uh, fundamentally is, um, an effort to create a digital communication link between the human brain and an external computer. Um, and, uh, to enable, um, people through thought alone. So no movement, just, just through thought to, you know, operate a computer, to play video games, to create art, to communicate via text messages and, and email, um, and, and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, this sounds like it's science fiction, mm-hmm. um, but the first person to be implanted with sort of a modern brain-computer interface um, was actually in 2004, so uh, nearly 20 years ago. Um, and that person was able to, um, you know, operate a, a, a computer cursor, uh, through thought alone. And, and subsequently there are nearly 40 people, um, who have been implanted with BCI technology. Um, and so, you know, th- this sounds like it is, um, very futuristic, but, but actually, uh, it, it's been going on for, for some time. Um, the primary users of BCI technology, uh, up until now, and I think still for, 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 for the next, um, several years, are people who are paralyzed mm-hmm. um, for various reasons, whether it's spinal cord industry, uh, injury, certain kinds of stroke, neurodegenerative diseases. Um, so the, the brain is still functional and the body um, in certain cases is still functional, but the connection um, is, uh, is, is impaired. Um, and so PCIs can play a really meaningful role in, in restoring that and giving people greater functionality and better quality of life. Well, so like when you said that you you could send text messages through thought, like my first thought was like, what if I'm having a horrible thought about a friend or just thinking, God, this person pisses me off. Like that was, and it's like, hey, send, you know, and suddenly, you know, my friend who I absolutely love, but I'm just kind of annoyed with gets a <laughs> random text from me think, saying, hey, I think you're an asshole. Like explain so the, to me like the, what the, the boundaries are here. Like how does this actually work? The state of the art, uh, is, is certainly not that we can read people's minds. Okay. Um, it is that, uh, you know, it has to be very intentional. Um, and, you know, for example, one, one way to think about it is through, um, I guess there, there's sort of two ways, uh, primarily the communication has been, um, achieved with the BCI. One is, uh, by thinking about a, um, moving a computer cursor over like digital letters on a keyboard, mm-hmm. um, and then clicking on them or, uh, by sort of imagining, um, handwriting. So writing A, B, C, D, whatever, um, and write, but, but not actually doing it, but just imagining that you're handwriting. Um, and, uh, BCI can decode the intended, uh, movement and, um, basically, you know, uh, convert that into typing mm-hmm. or, um, imagine speech. Uh, so, you know, uh, really sort of, uh, recording around, the motor area of the brain um, that is associated with movements of the mouth and tongue. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you are trying to voice, and a lot of the people who have used this technology so far are locked in and so unable to speak at all, but they imagine uh, moving their mouths in a way that, um, you know, would articulate certain words and those words, you know, appear on a computer screen. Yeah. 
Well, so the, something that I, I was thinking about, because you and I were just talking about my AI note-taking app, which has like tens of thousands of notes in it, like, you know, all our podcast transcripts, like all my book notes. So are you saying that I could effectively have all of that knowledge basically accessible by memory? I think that right now, uh, we and most other BCI companies are focused on recording, mm-hmm. i.e. Um, the, you know, the, the electrodes that are implanted in the brain in various ways, and that gets into sort of the, the technical aspects of the technology, um, are sort of reading what the brain is intending to do as opposed to writing into the brain, um, which I think if you want to, like, basically allow for memory, memory recall um, through a technological uh product, you would need to be able to also write. And I think that that's some some number of years away. Yeah. Well, because like I was thinking about that, like, you know, what are the implications of that for society at large? Like, you know, some well-read kid who's read a thousand books and is like just, you know, kept detailed copious notes is going to have like some massive unfair advantage over the average person who doesn't have this brain implant. So like, talk to me about the the sort of social implications for this over time, because if, if, you know, if we think about this from the standpoint of inequality, is this just going to create even greater levels of inequality potentially when we're talking about things like this? It almost reminds me of like designer babies. It's a great question. Um, you know, let me take a step back and answer a question that I didn't really address, which is how did I find myself in this, in this crazy industry and, yeah. and, and what am I doing here? It really was the genesis of a meeting, um, that was, um, set up by a mutual friend um, whom we had just both gone to college with a guy named Ben Rappaport. Uh, and Ben is an extraordinarily special and, and unusual person. Uh, ben is both um, a neurosurgeon uh, and also an electrical engineer. So he went to Harvard Medical School and MIT to get a PhD in electrical engineering at the same time. Um, and that was a very intentional combination of um, courses because his life's work, um, you know, starting sort of from the age of 20 has been to develop a brain computer interface. Um, and the reason, um, the, the, the mission, Ben's mission and now the mission of precision neuroscience, uh, is solely medically focused. Um, so, you know, we are developing technology that we think will make a huge difference, um, in the lives of people who are suffering from some forms of paralysis of which there are, you know, a lot. Um, and by the way, you know, paralysis is something that could happen to anyone, could happen to any of us or our loved ones, family members. Um, and right now there's really no uh, medical therapy that's available um, to, um, to to people who are unfortunate enough to, to have paralysis. And so I think through BCI, there's the potential to make a huge uh, improvement in quality of life in the first instance. Beyond that, I think that there are also, you know, there are hundreds of millions of people globally who suffer from neurological illnesses of various kinds, um, whether it's, you know, ADD or uh, addiction or refractory depression um, or, you know, many others, um, which are, you know, poorly served by um, pharma, uh, which which has, you know, significant um, sort of unintended consequences and, and, and side effects. So, you know, I think there's a huge amount of potential uh, that's, again, medical from this sort of combination of creating a connection between the human brain and, uh, you know, artificial intelligence driven algorithms. Um, the 
In water, what you're getting at, which is more sort of general use BCI, mm-hmm. is absolutely possible. Um, I think it is decades away. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, you know, very much not the sort of founding mission of, of precision neuroscience. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Right. Well, let's talk specifically about what you mentioned about sort of the neurological issues. As somebody with ADHD, that immediately caught my attention. And you mentioned pharma, right? Which you know, we say unintended consequences. Sometimes I don't, I kind of wonder if that's not, not actually unintended because uh, we had Naveen Jain here. And I remember he was telling me about a phone call that he had with the CEO of a pharma company who said, 
the best drug we can make is the one that somebody has to take for the rest of their life. He's like, it's the ultimate mm. subscription business. And, you know, if you've read Michael Pollan's book, Chain, How to Change Your Mind, he writes about the fact that, you know, like uh, psilocybin is basically at, at phase three clinical trials. And the biggest opponents to this actually going through are pharma companies, because he's like, why on earth would you want somebody to be cured in, you know, four sessions of therapy with psilocybin when we can sell them, you know, Prozac that they have to take for the next five years? It like, so this poses a huge threat to the industry. And I feel like the, the pharma industry is like basically probably shitting bricks with all the innovation that's happening around potentially like making them unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I think also neuro in general has been like a graveyard uh, for most um, pharma uh, sort of innovation. Um, and so patients are starved for better solutions. Um, and with a few notable exceptions, pharma has has just done not a great job. Yeah. Well, let, let's actually look at this in the context of some very specific uh, use cases. Let's take ADHD as an example. Talk to me about how a, a brain-computer interface could help somebody who has ADHD. So I, I think at this point, um, what do we know works? We know that we can put an array uh, over areas of the brain that um, drive sort of motor function, so motor cortex, and that uh, a BCI can decode those intended actions to drive function. Um, we know that, and uh, that's been the case, as I mentioned, sort of, you know, pe people have been doing this for 19 years. And we and other companies in, in, in this industry, and there's sort of five serious companies that have raise, you know, meaningful capital that are, that are developing implantable BCI systems. Um, we're all focused really on that use case, um, because it is the one that, that, you know, frankly, we know works and mm -hmm. it's been extremely well validated. Yeah. Um, and we think that there's an opportunity, both sort of a clinical positive impact that we can drive by doing that as well as a commercial positive impact, because, you know, we can, we, it, it's a market that is, um, significantly sized. Beyond that, there are reasons to believe that we can make a huge difference, uh, but it will require experimentation and trials and validation mm -hmm. before we can say for sure. Um, one of the things about the brain, and I know that you know you've had a lot of podcast podcast guests um, who are you know involved in neuro in one way or another. Um, you know, it, it, in a lot of ways, scientifically, it's one of the last true frontiers. We, we still know so little about uh, the the actual mechanisms um, of the brain. Uh -huh. And, you know, our hope is that this is not, you know, one of those sort of, this is not why we started Precision Neuroscience, but we think a byproduct of the work that we're doing, um, you know, creating electrodes that interface directly with the brain. We have already provided a picture of human brain activity at, unprecedented, at unprecedented resolution. Um, and... You know, the, the amount of um, what we're going to learn from that, um, I think, remains to be seen. I think we're really optimistic, but it's hard to say with any certainty. Yeah. Well, earlier you alluded to the idea of, you know, making art, doing all sorts of things. So, I, like, you know, the the like life hacker in me is thinking, OK, what are the implications of this for um, things like producing flow states on demand and like elevating human performance? Like, I know you've, you know solely focused on medical applications, like what does the future potentially look like in your mind when it comes to this? Are we just going to have like cognitive superstars like being bred because of this? I, I would say that um, 
when when we think about sort of general use of brain computer interfaces, um, we think about this in sort of the context of um, the interaction between human beings and computers. That interface, the, the interface between people and uh, computers has really changed, um, you know, repeatedly over the course of the past, let's say, sort of 70 or 80 years from like mainframe computers um, in the in the 50s to personal computers in the 80s and 90s uh, to laptops to iPhones and iPads. Um, and now we're moving into wearables. You know, I'm wearing AirPods uh, for this uh, discussion and, and AirPods, you know, I don't know if you use them, but like sometimes I forget that I have them in and it's as if I had an implant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually part of like the functionality. Yeah. So, you know, right now the way that human beings interact with computers is primarily through this little black box at the end of our hands. And it's possible that that is the end state, uh, in terms of sort of the human computer, uh, interface. Uh, but I think it's also possible that that it's not uh, and that the interface becomes increasingly seamless um, in decades to come. Yeah. Well, so one thing that I wonder about, you know, you uh, mentioned earlier, like, you know, the possibilities are both potentially amazing and dystopian and that you're trying to avoid the latter. And I, I remember seeing either there's a YouTube video or a documentary. There's a nightclub somewhere in Europe where the entire bar was run buy an implant in somebody's arm so they could pay for their drinks that way. They could basically their, their commercial life, like their financial life was managed through this implant. And, you know, I don't know whether I saw it in a movie or something or read it in a book, but somebody was like, yeah. And the crazy thing about that is if somebody turned that thing off, you would effectively be paralyzed. I'm pretty sure it was probably a documentary about AI in China. Um, so like, talk to me about sort of the, the, like, what are your fears for bad actors getting their hands on this technology um, and being able to do things like I just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, you know, we are building security into every aspect of the device, uh, into the ASIC, which we're developing. Um, so at the hardware level, um, as well as, uh, you know, sort of fundamental and from the very beginning in the software level, obviously the stakes are really high uh, when it comes to sort of neural security and, and, and data protection. Um, you know, I think that this is a, um, an area that requires like constant sort of oversight uh, and supervision. We're doing everything we can. I think, you know, the, the, one of the perspectives I think it's important to keep in mind is the patient perspective. Um, and, you know, I was on a panel where, uh, someone who had had one of, you know, one of the 40 people, um, and Ian Burkhart, who was implanted with this technology. And, you know, he was asked a similar question about, you know, how he felt about data privacy and, um, you know, his own, his own neural data. Um, and he said, well, it sort of depends. Like if, if, if the array is, uh, positioned on, you know, an area that controls my finger movements, uh, I don't really care, uh, if, you know, th- those, those finger movements are, are, you know, kept super securely. Um, but if the interface becomes, um, able to interface with other areas of sort of my, my consciousness or my intentions, then that could be a very different, uh, a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'm imagining a black mirror type of scenario here when you're describing that. No, totally, totally. And, you know, this is something that like, you know, the first pacemaker, uh, was, um, you know, a, a plugin. Uh, and then electricity was lost and, and 
you know, someone died. And so it was like, oh, wow, we have to have a pacemaker that's battery operated in case that happens. Um, and so absolutely, like resilience is and safety is sort of paramount in, in this technology. Yeah. Well, so talk to me about the, the, the patient experience. Like, let's say somebody, for example, with some sort of neurological disorder that comes to you, you know, uh, and, and wants to have one of these implants, like who's paralyzed. Um, like one, what does that process look like from diagnosis to implant? What does it look like after? And then, you know, like, are we talking people whose brains are fully functioning? Or are we talking like stroke patients, people with Parkinson's, that kind of thing? So, you know, I'll give you a little bit of background on on the company. Um, we were founded in 2020. Uh, ben and I um, started the company and then raised our first round of capital in 2021. Um, and uh, we implanted our first patient in 2023. So um, earlier this year. So, you know, basically two years from founding, which if you look at it in the context of uh, medical devices generally and and you know, our, our peers in the brain computer interface industry, yeah. you know, it's incredibly, incredibly fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so far we're, we're limited in terms of the duration of the implants. Um, mm-hmm. so we can't let someone sort of, you know, go home with the implant. Um, we're really now in the process of, you know, further validating, um, safety and efficacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we hope to have our first FDA clearance, uh, for a, a device, um, that can be implanted for, for, for several weeks, uh, sometime next year. So I'd imagine getting FDA clearance for this is a lot, a hell of a lot more complicated than something like a nutritional supplement. It sure is. And, and rightfully so. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about, yeah, you know, the, the, the stakes are high. Um, you know, we are dealing with a material, which is a polyimide, which is what our array is made out of. Um, that is, uh, you know, well established in terms of biocompatibility. Um, and the fundamental nature of our technology, I'll, I'll go a little bit into the weeds here just because I think it's helpful context. Yeah. So there, there, there are a few different approaches to how do you, how do you get, how do you create that interface with the brain? Um, and it's really, uh, it, it's basically how do you get electrodes, uh, which are able to sort of sense the electrical activity of the brain and then stimulate. So i.e. like read and write. How do you get electrodes into the brain in a safe way that's able to drive functionality? That's kind of the, you know, core uh, hardware question uh, when it comes to the implant. Um, and there are different approaches um, to how to do that. So the, the first approach uh, was really pioneered by um, the Utah Array, which is now owned by a company called BlackRack uh, and based in Utah. Uh, and you know, it, it was a tool that was developed originally by neuroscientists for animal work um, that was then used um, for human patients. And it's basically um, a very small, few millimeters by a few millimeters, um, bed of very, very, very small needles. Um, and those needles are uh, pushed into the brain um, and are able uh, to record um, sort of, you know, the, the activity of, of individual neurons um, at, at pretty good resolution. Um, and so each of those arrays has about a hundred electrodes. And of the five companies that are developing technology in the space, three of the five, um, are doing something that is either that or is a derivative of, of that basic, um, approach, i.e. getting electrodes into the brain by penetrating into the brain, um, in one way, shape or form. And so that's Blackrock. Paradromics and Neuralink, um, and they're doing it in, in slightly different ways, but but that's kind of the the the, the fundamental approach. Yeah. Um, 
we are developing um, or we have developed an array that sits on the surface of the brain. It has incredible, like a huge number of electrodes. So 1,024 electrodes within, you know, sort of uh, uh, a little more than a square centimeter. Um, and these electrodes are, you know, the array is incredibly thin. So it's a fifth of the width of a human hair. So it sits really conformally on the surface of the brain. Um, and those electrodes, 95% of them are 50 microns in diameter. So half the width of a human hair. So you can barely see them um, with the naked eye. Um, and they're manufactured using uh, sort of photolithography, which is like the same technology that's used to make uh, semiconductor chips. Um, and because of that high resolution, you get an incredibly uh, detailed picture of the brain's activity. Um, the final approach to inserting electrodes is um, uh, endovascularly, so like through a vein. Um, and a company called Synchron is doing this uh, with a stent-based um, array of 16 electrodes. Um, and so, you know, all of those sort of three technologies and three different approaches really have different safety profiles. Um, and they they also have different efficacy profiles. Uh, and one of the benefits, I think, of our approach is that we don't do any damage to the underlying tissue of the brain, healthy or compromised. We do, you know, the, the array sits conformally on the surface of the brain, but it does not damage or disrupt uh, brain tissue. And so it's reversible. Mm -hmm. um, and from the FDA's perspective, um, this is an important feature, uh, which is um, unique to sort of the, the approach that we've taken at Precision and which is part of the reason why we've been able to uh, get into to, to patients so rapidly um, compared to others. So once one of these implants is in somebody's brain, I mean, not just in terms of what you guys are doing, but across the board, like what kind of information are we able to get uh, beyond sort of just like looking at a brain scan and, and seeing brain activity? Like, you know, how much of it can we decode into something that we can actually say that like the layman could make sense of it? So that's that, that, that's where we are as an industry, which is that we're now on the cusp and really just starting to generate lots of high resolution data. Um, and uh, decoding that data is what is going to ultimately drive like the extraordinary functionality of BCIs um, in coming years. There were two results at two different academic labs um, that were announced last week that made a big splash sort of in, in the industry. Both both uh, came out in nature. Um, and one was the result of work done at UCSF uh, by the um, chairman of the neurosurgery department. Um, and one was done by a group at Stanford. Uh, and the two groups, totally independently, um, were able to uh, sort of record the world record uh, in terms of the speed of speech decoding. So uh, UCSF was able to achieve 80 words per minute, um, and uh, the Stanford group was able to achieve 62 words per minute. Um, and that's approaching sort of conversational speeds. Um, and the, the people who were, uh, who, who were doing this, you know, in one case had had a brainstem stroke and had been locked in for 18 years. Um, and in another case had ALS, uh, and, and was unable to communicate. And so you're getting to the point now where you're starting to see, you know, in the academy, um, people drive results that really are, um, sort of, you know, able-bodied like in terms of performance levels. Um, and what we're doing and what a few of the other companies are doing are, are, are really taking this technology and productizing it. Um, because 
the way it's being done in sort of an academic setting is with technicians and with, you know, wires and, you know, in a way that's not a scalable product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our job is to take that and, and make it something that can be adopted uh, at sort of a, a mass scale. Well, so uh, thinking about this, you know, I, I remember a conversation I had with uh, the CEO of Effectiva where they use um, like eye tracking technology to gauge people's emotional responses to how they're reacting to content that they consume. And, and you know, obviously that is like incredibly valuable information for advertisers. We tried to do it with our listeners. The problem is people listen. They don't watch a podcast for the most part. So it was kind of hard to get any real data, but it just got mm-hmm. me thinking like, wow, could we actually like, you know, prove by like, uh, you know, my, my goal was basically, I wanted to say like, we can use science to prove that listening to this podcast actually makes you a happier person over the long term, which was an absurd, like a really insane thesis. But just based on the anecdotal evidence, we're like, well, what if we could actually quantify this with real science? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, you know, Elon Musk talks about Neuralink's device uh, as like a fit for the brain. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, along the lines of, of what you're describing, where you could see, you know, uh, brain states um, in, in, in super high sort of definition uh, and correlate those with activities and, and uh, entertainment and all sorts of different things. Yeah. Well, where do you face uh, resistance, both from the medical community as well as, as patients, like what kind of things? Cause like, like I said, I think my, my first thought would be that oh, people would be like, Oh, this sounds like a dystopian nightmare. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think our biggest challenge honestly is just that what we're doing is, is, you know, very complex. It's, it, it requires, there is hardware, there's an implantable aspect to it. So there's a part of the system that actually sits on the surface of the brain. Then you have to develop microelectronics, including a custom ASIC uh, that processes the signals that are coming out of the brain in a sort of power efficient way. And then, you know, um, through, you know, appropriate power management, uh, you and a appropriate wireless protocol, you can get the information, you know, from the implant to a computer. Um, and then, you know, there's a totally critical software element to this where, um, to your point, you need to sort of decode all the information that you're, uh, that you're recording and, and, and make sense of it. You know, it's an, inc- it's a really interdisciplinary project, uh, to develop a BCI. Um, and it requires people with not like, you know, good expertise, but like world class expertise in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer engineering, regulatory science, um, just, just, a, a so many different areas. Um, and so I'd say that's like, one of our largest uh, challenges. Um, and then uh, also, you know, we're, we're operating in a very highly regulated industry. And again, mm-hmm. like rightful, rightfully so, uh, it, 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 safety is sort of, you know, c- cannot be compromised. Um, but uh, that means um, longer timelines and, um, and, and ultimately uh, greater expense. Um, and so, you know, I think that that just sort of comes with the territory of developing yeah. a brain computer interface. O- on the other hand, the size of the market's enormous. Uh, so, you know, compared to most medical devices and, and really most technologies uh, more generally, I think the, the, the opportunities here um, are pretty profound. Um, but, uh, you know, the, you take the good with the bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm guessing like this is an industry where there's like little to no margin for error. Yep. I think medical device technology is like that in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is, this is, you know, especially so. Well, let's finish up by talking about one other thing. Like 
let's you know go beyond the the sort of healthcare use case and talk about you know like in the future what might an everyday use case look like you know in terms of just enhancing our day-to-day lives with this kind of technology like what are we possibly going to be able to do that we can't today it's so hard to speculate um i i do think that uh you know, all of the ways in which we, uh, well, you know, Elon Musk's view on this, which he's been very public about, um, is that, you know, AI poses an existential threat to humanity. Um, and effectively, if you can't beat him, join him. Uh, and so, you know, creating a sort of symbiotic, uh, connection between human beings and, and computers is our best shot at long-term survival. That is like way out there and, and certainly not the thesis of precision neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, I, I do imagine ways in which the technology could be, could be pretty useful on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I think about it in sort of sometimes like really prosaic ways. Like I like going for runs to sort of clear my head and, and, uh, get some exercise. And, you know, I have most of my creative thoughts while going for a run. And I'd say I forget like half of them by the time I'm done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, being able to sort of jot down notes, um, and, uh, and, and, and maybe message someone, um, on the fly, uh, you know, using nothing other than your thoughts, I think would be, would be really awesome. Yeah. No, that would be very cool. As somebody who's a writer and, and content creator, that would be like mind blowingly cool to me. Uh, <laughs> like I, I think that that would be just one of those things that, you know, could be transformative in terms of, you know, like just our, our day-to-day lives. Yep. Absolutely. Well, this has been just absolutely fascinating. I have two more questions. Like, what is your take on, on the Elon view of AI being an existential threat to humanity? Because like, just to, to give you an idea, like I was, you know, I, I use, as I mentioned, this AI note taking up mem. And this is something that I found that was really kind of funny. I was going into one AI and based on the fact that I had all my content in one, I was like, I need you to give me a prompt that I can put into another AI to generate images. And I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. So I was like, literally, I was like, okay, you know what? I want you to craft a business plan for an idea that I have no idea how to execute the AI to AI communication layer for the internet. And it was like, that's a gargantuan undertaking. <laughs> um, but it got me thinking about what you said about the existential threat, because I realized I was like, wait, I'm literally saying I want all my AIs to communicate with each other, which does like suddenly puts us in a very different state when it comes to AI, um, where it literally you suddenly are, you know, AI to AI communication to me on the one hand, I'm like, that would be amazing. And then I thought about the greater implications. I was like, that could be dangerous, too. It t- t- totally could be. And I think what you're getting at is kind of my, I, you know, I have sort of two fundamental thoughts when I, when I think about AI. I think it's just the range of outcomes in the next sort of few decades has has widened. Uh, so I think it could be insanely awesome. Um, and there are so many ways that certainly, like I spent a lot of time in the healthcare sector, I think there are so many ways uh, that AI can play an incredibly constructive role um, in delivering like consistently best-in-class healthcare to people um, that, uh, you know, I, I think that there's like a lot of both economic and human health uh, benefits that I think are really likely uh, as a result of AI. But then on the other hand, uh, there's like the non-zero chance that uh, we destroy ourselves or it destroys us or some combination of those two things. Yeah. Um, and you just sort of, you, you know, people will debate the probabilities of that outcome. But the fact that it's like non-zero, you know, you sort of wonder to yourself, like, you know, why haven't we found uh, life out, uh, you know, outside of the earth? Um, and, and one plausible explanation is that like, you know, when creatures become intelligent enough, they figure out how to destroy themselves. Uh, and, you know, 
in the 40s, we discovered one area, one, one, one sort of avenue for uh, total mass destruction, uh, nuclear warfare. And, and, and now it seems like we're, we're in the process of sort of uh, discovering another one. Uh, so going from like zero technologies that could destroy humanity to two all, you know, within 100 years is, uh, you know, maybe that's bad. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been fascinating as I expected it would be. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, I sort of think about this from the perspective uh, of an investor, which is sort of, you know, how, how I was trained um, in the first part of my career. Um, and, you know, it's it's very, when you're looking at investment, um, you're looking at the idea, the, the product, the, the, the problem that's trying to solve. You look at the team uh, or the person who, 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 you know, is trying to execute it. And you look at the, the size of the market and the risk that is associated with that market generally. Um, and, uh, people generally sort of think like the more risk you take, the more return you get and, and, and vice versa. And that's usually the case. Uh, but every once in a while, it, it's really not. Uh, and for me, you know, meeting Ben, Ben is just, you know, one of these incredibly gifted, brilliant people, um, who had, uh, spent his whole life uh, becoming, you know, the, the, the world expert on an area of technology, uh, that we knew worked and yet still hasn't, you know, had the impact that it should have. Um, and so I certainly felt, uh, like, you know, meeting Ben was sort of an unmistakable opportunity for me. And that's how I've spent the past several years of my life. Beautiful. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about uh, you, your work, your company and everything else? Yeah, I mean, uh, our website, precisionneuro.io uh, and uh, LinkedIn. And we are we are hiring, so please, please take a look. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.